You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Hello guys and welcome to another episode of the Nutmeg Arena podcast or the TNA podcast as we say. This is once again a special episode. We've been having uh, a few special episodes of late and we'll be having more as well in the near future. And this one's going to be another bumper one. And I'm joined as usual by my co-host Chris and my special guest for the day is none other than Stephen Drennan who is famously known on Twitter by the name Babu Yagu so welcome Chris and Stephen thanks very much good to be here yeah good to be here yeah great having uh, you on the show Stephen i mean this was probably in the works for some time we were actually thinking of having you on the podcast for some time but yeah when the time comes that that that's when everything comes up together so yeah great so we'll be talking a few stuff on the data analytics part of football today since you are you yourself are a data wish and you have a, a, a website or you know of own geek called crack stats i i guess i'm pronouncing it right it's crack stats if i'm not wrong or crack a yeah yeah that's spot on it's it's basically uh the the word english crack it, it sounds the exact same in portuguese but it's just spelled differently uh and the word crack in portuguese is what people use for like man of the match to be yeah. cracked as jogo and it's like the the portuguese words for man of the match is crack so it's like uh just like a play on words but also because i'm irish and we use the word crack again spelled differently to mean like banter it has lots of meanings so we kind of like that word we thought we could do different things with it yeah and we kind of enjoy your uh, status and your long threads with the statistics and plays uh, it's really good to see an in-depth analysis of you know different stuff and yeah we'll but before we move on to the data side probably we start with the football and probably start with the biggest news that uh the biggest thing that's happened probably which is liverpool winning the league title i mean it it has been coming for a long time now but finally you can officially say that liverpool are premier league champions after 30 years uh i couldn't hold my excitement i'm a liverpool fan obviously and i couldn't hold my excitement yesterday um i, I guess it was early morning here when chelsea and city were playing I guess the match was over by 2:30 a.m. in the morning yesterday, and wow. the next three, yep, and the next three, three and a half hours, I couldn't sleep. I was actually on Twitter, on WhatsApp, seeing the videos of players celebrating. I had tears myself because I'm I'm too young, and I'm I've never seen the club win the league title. So, I mean, it's it's a different feeling altogether, and it was indeed special. I, and Chris actually congratulated me despite being an Everton fan and yeah and I was also telling him that it it is just kind of emotional and very hard to sell so 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 almost like my phone yeah <laughs> so yep. someone's found my phone and said that it wasn't me yeah <laughs> <laughs> nah, <my joke. laughs> yeah and yeah Stephen so what are your thoughts on you know Liverpool's first Premier League victory probably since the rebranding especially it it's kind of weird for me it it, it kind of hasn't sunk in yet really um i mean back in back in march when the whole pandemic thing happened and you i kind of football's always been my escape in life for like anything at all that's going on 
I, I had like really hard years in my life and football was always the thing I used just to escape from it. So when I lived in Ipswich, for example, as a season ticket holder at Ipswich and then going along to the football, uh, I would go along to their youth football games. I would go along and watch them train if I could. I'd go and watch Sunday Sunday league games in it and, and, and around the city. And so whenever the whole pandemic thing happened in March, it was kind of like the thing that I always used, the escape from real life whenever real life was going a bit weird. It just wasn't there anymore. And you don't want to think about football because it just seems really selfish or disconnected from what's happening. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just football. But when the world was all just turning to shit around you and you just wanted something to escape from it for like half an hour, 20 minutes a day or a few hours at the weekend and it isn't there anymore, it was kind of just, it kind of just made everything feel a lot, lot worse even though it shouldn't, again, because it just doesn't matter, it's just football, but it, it just did. And then your mind wanders to the whole, if the league gets cancelled and what if we don't win it? And and then you sort of, you feel bad thinking about it because you're like, this doesn't matter, people are dying. But you can't help it because that's always the thing that you think about whenever you try to escape from the fact that people are dying and the whole world's going a bit crazy. So it's still taken me a moment to realise that it's happened because so much has happened in the past few months that I kind of haven't dealt with that either. I haven't dealt with the fact that, like, I don't know, like half a billion people have died or whatever in the world. It's it's crazy. When you really think about it, like, it's crazy and it doesn't matter. And so I haven't really allowed myself the freedom to get absolutely carried away by it. But watching, watching the videos of, like, Jurgen Klopp talking and seeing him break down, I, I was crying as well because it's just, like, the whole thing's just been overwhelming. Like... It's not just the emotion of Liverpool winning it. It's the whole thing. The whole, this year's just been an absolute nightmare. And it's like having that one little bright spark is is huge. It's absolutely huge. And I'm, I'm happy it happened. And I'm, I'll probably set aside some time to properly enjoy it and celebrate it. I'll watch back like all of our games or something, or highlights or something when the football stops. But it still hasn't really sunk in yet. It, it just hasn't, and I don't know why, and I don't know when it will, but it, maybe I'll need the parade. I'll need to watch the parade, and, and that'll be the moment, but I haven't had that moment yet. So it's it's kind of surreal a bit at the moment still. Like, it's still a bit like it's a dream, you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah and I, I guess it's going to be, uh, I guess we're going to have to wait a bit or probably a little long before we can have the parade. I mean, Chris is basically from Merseyside as well, and probably he can give a better picture of what's happening on Merseyside. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully, again, I'll speak, I'll speak with uh, uh, me, me non-Everton head on here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, hopefully the parade can be arranged for the club and the fans as soon as possible so then circumstances such as last night can be avoided, really. So, but I mean, talking about it from a purely football perspective, uh, it's been a long time coming and, and, and touching on some of the points that uh, Stephen has made there, given the situation with the pandemic and the fact that Liverpool was so close before the pandemic, the, the lockdown happened um, before football stopped. I, I, it, I think it, I think there'll be a, a lot of people feeling the same as what Stephen has there with the sort of the relief and the emotion of just finally getting it. I mean, at one point it might have even felt like it weren't going to come. Not, not. Not because of the football itself, because Liverpool, it was always a matter of of when, not if. Certainly from, say, December onwards. But given the, given the lockdown and the football was stop, stopping, it was always, and, and the uncertainty of 
what was going to happen or how the actual game was going to come back if it was I think, I, I think there would have been a lot of Liverpool fans uh, feeling the way Stephen has there just becoming sort of overwhelmed by it really with just relief and emotion Jurgen Klopp being the obvious candidate for that yeah that, that's exactly it that's spot on um, it, the, the thing for me though is I don't know if it's an Irish thing it, it probably is but it's the guilt it, it's the guilt of feeling happy about something at the moment that isn't important and it, it shouldn't you shouldn't feel like that it's it's sort of it's mental to think like that but you do you, like I do I, I feel like that and it's like like I've no right to be celebrating anything at all like that these things don't matter but it's just always been the thing that that I use to escape from real life and if you get back go down to that deep on it it's like there's always bad things happening in the world so you can never celebrate anything at all and then like people would just break down and wouldn't be able to exist so it can function properly so you kind of need to allow yourself time to process this and appreciate the fact that this is a hobby and you're allowed to enjoy it even when bad things are happening like doctors and nurses all need hobbies to get away from the real life stuff that they deal with every day and you, you need that you need that escapism but even still it just i can't i can't get over it i can't not yet i will i've, I've saved all the videos when i do but i haven't got over it yet that guilt yeah. feeling do, do you think Stephen then Liverpool have been unfortunate to have won the league when 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 the pandemic has actually set in do you think, do you think they've been unfortunate in that regard and it will be uh, obviously from a football perspective no one can take yeah. anything away from the club I know people will always joke about it oh right well yeah it was only a 29 game season and then it was 10 9 friendlies or whatever else people will joke about but I mean realistically looking at it I mean the season's still going to get completed it's still a 38 game season and Liverpool were that far ahead anyway it was always like they were always going to win a league at some point but the fact that it has been delayed and the fact that Covid-19 was so serious obviously not just in Merseyside or the UK but around the world that people that the club or Liverpool Football Club have actually been unfortunate that they have ended their title wait now yeah I, I kind of there's two sides I see to that it's basically the first one from a like a sporting perspective and, and how devalued it is and all of that it, ultimately that probably won't matter in the future but in the right now with all yeah. of the conversations going on it's difficult and I think if Liverpool hadn't have been in a Champions League final and then won a Champions League and then got 97 points last year and then just steamrollered the league this year, it's kind of, it, it, nobody can deny that that's just, that's the level they're at at the moment. If you're that consistent for like two and a half, three years, people can say you don't deserve it. Everyone knows that they do. Yeah. If, if, if it had worked out a different way, if it spawned it, like, would, like um, it came out of nowhere, like 2013-14, um, like that just yeah. came out of nowhere. So if it was like that, yeah, it would have probably felt differently. But I'm not. I'm not really bothered about those arguments at the moment. Yeah. But the the other thing I think about it as well is, in a way, it's kind of the perfect year for Liverpool to win it because this has been such a hard year, and I've got loads of like people I follow on Twitter and people who follow me and I interact with them and I, I can see that in in Liverpool it, it's been especially hard the whole COVID-19 thing. It looks like that's probably yeah. one of the worst, if not the worst hit city. And I've got no yeah. doubt the government letting that Atletico Madrid game go ahead probably plays a huge part in that because Spain was going through it at the time when that happened. So yeah. in a way, it's kind of the perfect time for it to happen because it's a lift for the whole city. Um, and, 
yeah, I kind of I kind of like it from that sense. It's in that people who need an escape and for them Liverpool is their escape. This is a good time for them. They have that escape, and it's probably been a very uplifting moment. And I've got no doubt that that plays into why you're seeing so many celebrations happen around the city now. It's not that people don't know how serious this is, or how dangerous it is, or how stupid it is. They just need to, to let that out. It let let something out. You know, it it, it doesn't make sense unless you feel it. If if that, yeah. it's hard to explain. But sometimes you just need a release, and that's it. And that's it for them. Yeah. And I understand it. It's wrong, but I understand it. Yeah. Totally. Well, I mean, when I was thinking about this, I knew, I knew. Obviously, we were going to talk about Liverpool and a title win on this podcast. So I started thinking about it, and I thought, right, well, the obvious subject of COVID nineteen will actually come into it. But I think, I think it'd be unfair to Liverpool and Liverpool fans listening that if, if we just focused around that and we actually just take a minute to actually talk about talk about the football and aspect of the achievements as well. I mean. When you look at the amount of games that Liverpool have won this season, I mean, it really is truly remarkable the consistency that that they've achieved. Not just in terms of consistently remaining unbeaten, but just consistently churning out week after week, three points after three points after three points. And I remember having a conversation with my uncle last year, and it's before last season. This was before last season, and we were like, obviously Manchester City went on to win the league, but they were favourites. But there was only still, there was still a, a growing sense that well, Liverpool are coming, and they're now the main threat. And I said the thing about Guardiola and any team that he manages is you might beat them head to head, but to beat them in the league and finish higher than them, you have to win. 31 to 32 maybe even 33 games out of the 38 because his teams are so consistent proved that at Barcelona proved that at Bayern Munich and he's proven the same now at Man City and Liverpool actually done that last season I mean finishing 97 points was a remarkable achievement even though and then not to win the league but then to go and the, the mental effect to finish on 97 points and not win the league must have been so sort of, oh my God, what do we have to do here? And then to go out and do it again, and I actually think Jurgen Klopp being the manager that he is now will actually be say, listen, you've got to go out and get a maximum number of points here. Easily, easily. I think, what what's the maximum tally that Liverpool can finish on? Is it 106 points this season? It's 107 yeah. now. 100, 107 points. I mean, that, I mean, to go out and win that amount of games, given the season that they had last season and didn't win the league it's it's just relentless really that's the best way to describe them for me relentless but in a winning yeah. sense no I agree no it's, it's remarkable um, it, I remember um, during the course of the se- uh, season trying to describe the difference between Pep Guardiola, uh, Guardiola's team and Liverpool's team sorry during the course of last season and basically um, the way Guardiola coaches his team it's very rigid and strict in terms of players having certain positions they need to be in in each phase of play. Yeah. And uh, that's the sort of difference from them and Klopp is that Klopp's teams are more free um, to sort of move around, lots of positional rotation. It doesn't matter where you are in the pitch. Whenever you fall into a certain position, that's your role and you have to function in it. And it means that um, Liverpool are kind of very good at finding ways to solve problems on the pitch because they're all used to um, playing in the different roles and having to do different functions at different times in the game and stuff. Whereas with Guardiola's team, it's kind of he has a process and it um, he coaches them to do that process absolutely perfectly. And what happens with Guardiola teams is that that process and with the players he has, teams can't really stop that. But on the odd occasion that they do, they seem to have a real tr- uh, problem with it because they can't 
flick a switch to do something else. It's like, well, no, this is this is our process, and if it's not working, we don't have a different process. So yeah. I compared it to basically saying Manchester City is a gold-plated hammer that treats every team like a nail, whereas yeah. uh, Jurgen Klopp's team is like a Swiss Army knife. There's lots of different ways they can they can play, and they can change who's in midfield to play a different way, whereas Guardiola's way of playing is set and teams can't really live with it. But I think that's probably maybe why they struggle in the Champions League more is that whenever they face teams, it can match their quality. And then it comes down to just the little things that happen in games, little moments that can go either way. And Manchester City don't really seem to have a way of dealing with the setbacks as well, I guess. Whenever things go against them, they just don't don't manage it as well, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I I, I agree with that. So, yeah. Go on, Rifford. Yeah, and... Yeah, and if you, if you look at Pep Guardiola's uh, results, just with the league football, I mean, only three man- managers have ever been able to actually, you know, uh, cut him off and win the league. It was Mourinho with Real Madrid in Spain, and Conte won. Antonio Conte won with Chelsea. I guess it was Mourinho. I guess it was Guardiola's first season here in England, and now Jurgen Klopp. So. That actually speaks a lot about how consistent his teams are. Like you said, Stephen, uh, they have a fixed or a set way of playing, but they're so good at it. Like they, they are really, really good at it, and it's it, it's very hard for teams to break them out. And like you said, when they are in full form, I don't think anyone can stop them. But when things are going wrong, you see them struggling a, a lot. And I think one of the main reasons why they struggled this season, I mean, I mean, I I was, I mean, when the season was about to start, I was saying this to a lot of my friends and also on Twitter that City are definitely going to miss Vincent Company's presence. Even if it's not on the pitch, I'm definitely, I, I, I was definitely sure that they're going to miss Company's presence, at least in the dressing room, because he was such an impactful leader. He was such a vocal presence as well in the dressing room or on the pitch as well. And I was very sure that they're going to miss him. And they did miss him. I know that Aymeric Laporte had a long injury and they struggled defensively. But it it is definitely, I mean, it is definitely there to be seen that they miss Vincent Company. So I, I guess that's one of the reasons as well, probably why they, they I mean, they've had the season that they're having right now. It's, it's quite underwhelming, definitely. Because uh, of the quality of the team that they have, they have immense quality. Even I mean, if if you take out the first eleven, if you look at the bench, they still have a top top team there. So, yeah, I think they've kind of been underwhelming this season. Yeah, it's it's the thing as well about um, it's lots of little things accumulating, lots of little problems that just accumulate for a team, and and if you don't solve them, eventually there's like a tipping point where they all add up to a problem that you don't have a solution to. So I remember I was looking at the, the data a while back for an article and Liverpool have something like recover more than 80% of the points once they go behind. And the, the other top teams in Europe is like mid-20s, 30s. It, it's, it's frightening how good Liverpool are at winning back points when they go behind. Whereas Manchester City are one of the teams that are around about average. And it, it, it's nothing about mentality monsters, I guess, that the Klopp always says, whereby Liverpool just have a really strong mentality at the moment. They're, they're not afraid of going behind. They know they'll get back into games. They have that utter belief in themselves. And maybe Manchester City just don't have that. And, and when you lose a player like your uh, Vincent Company, 
I reckon he's a he's a big part of their like strength, mental strength at the club and inside the locker room. I imagine he's a big part of that. And whenever you lose a player like that, you you need to replace it, or it will cost you. And it probably won't cost you against teams like um, Brighton and, and games like that, but because it doesn't matter. But whenever you're up against it in a game, like the way we came back against Barcelona, I guess, whenever you're up against it in a game, you need those players that won't just go out there accepting that they're already beaten, that have that utter belief that, no, we can get into this. We can we can get back into this game. And, and I don't think yeah. Manchester City have that. And it'll be interesting when they come to play Real Madrid because Real Madrid are in a good place at the moment. And Manchester City aren't really. And... I reckon if Real Madrid can get an early goal in that game, it'll be interesting to see how Manchester City handle it. Especially now that they've lost players like Aguero, I think, side as well now. And he's another one yeah. of their older players that's very... Um, lots of experience in the locker room, I guess. And it'll be interesting. It's a game I'm really looking forward to as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean... Uh, before we move on to the data part, uh, data analytics or visualization part, uh, what is your overall view of the Premier League season? Because the relegation battle has also been quite uh, quite amazing. Uh, you have teams like, I guess, Norwich has already done an out right now. I don't think they have a chance anymore because after definitely after their loss against Everton uh, of late. And you have Bournemouth who are also looking very likely to go down. It, it, it's really, it's quite sad because for me they are kind of a very likable team but unfortunately it looks like that they are going down you have Aston Villa as well there Watford West Ham Brighton as well in the mix despite their late wins and Southampton also I, I know despite uh, Ralph Hasenhutl kind of getting in mixed results they kind of seem to you know I, yeah, like, like I said, they kind of have mixed results and I don't know, they, they still might be in that relegation race. So it, it's it's quite an interesting battle there as well at the bottom end of the table. So what's your whole take on the season as a whole? A relegation battle or top four also? Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the season. I think it's, it's interesting to watch, uh, say for example, Manchester United. Um, they've had like a really bad time since Alex Ferguson retired. And you could kind of see it coming for a long time. They didn't really have any succession planning. And then out of the blue, it was like, oh, David Moyes will do it. And you're, and I didn't really see that working at all because like, there's absolutely nothing about him that says success. Whereas with Alex Ferguson, when he joined Manchester United, he had already done that in, in Aberdeen. He had already taken a club that weren't the best and made them the best in the country. And when he took over at United, they definitely weren't the best in the country, but, but he made that happen. So... With Moyes, you just didn't see it. You didn't see anything change. You, you saw it going down the pan, and it, it did very quickly. And and so they've been sort of muddling around for a while, but now they look like they've got their act together. The the team looks a bit better now. They're doing the right things, and they're kind of like interesting to watch from a neutral point of view, as much as a Liverpool fan can be neutral about Manchester United. But um, and it's the same story at Chelsea. Like Chelsea look like they're buying the the right players now. And, and uh, they're going to maybe start making a push to, to come back into it. Uh, Manchester City look like they need a rebuild, almost. They've got a lot of older players that probably need to be phased out and replaced. Um, but then their young players, like uh, Sané leaving, that's going to hurt them. Um, and then at the bottom of the table, um, I, I like Bournemouth as well. It's I really like Eddie Howe. He, he kind of 
tries to play football the right way. It's it's not that traditional English lump it up the front and then rush up the pitch after it sort of thing. It, he, he's looking to do the right things, but it, it's Bournemouth and they don't have the money really to, to do it. And the little that they have had, he hasn't really spent it very well at all, um, which is probably good for us from a Liverpool point of view because he keeps giving it to us for our players. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's... I, I, I like him, but he's he's not doing the, a good job in the transfer market, and it's kind of hurting him. And then for like Watford and West Ham, I would absolutely love them to go down, both of them, <laughs> ideally. But they're just they're teams that uh, I don't know. Whenever whenever we play against them, I just don't I, I don't like the vibe of their fans on Twitter. It kind of gets nasty very quickly. So I just yeah, the teams like that I'd rather not have. But if you can replace them with teams like Brentford. In the top flight, that, that would be great. Again, it's like I kind of like the underdogs as well. I like the little teams doing well. Like when Ipswich come up to the Premiership, that was great. It's like a little set, a little town, um, like twenty thousand in their ground. That's great. But um, yeah, I, I like Bournemouth as well. I liked Wigan. I don't really like West Ham and Wat and Watford, so they can go down. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Chris? How's, how's your season been from Everton's point of view? Is, are things turning around now under uh, Ancelotti? Yeah, I, I mean, you'd have to pretty much judge our season in two parts, wouldn't you? You'd have to say the Marco Silva part and then the Carlo Ancelotti part. I mean, been a lot of positives. I mean, the atmosphere and general feeling towards having a manager in charge and the positivity has been fantastic since Carlo Ancelotti took over for obvious reasons. I mean, you're talking, I still have to pinch myself really to uh, realise that he's still our manager for Everton to be a track, uh, to attract that type of all that caliber of a manager first of all it's just sort of it's just it's brilliant i mean we're seeing i think from a playing point of view uh, tactically we're seeing a lot of improvements even though individually there's still some um, serious rebuilding that needs to do and i think uh, obviously the first part of the season was underwhelming uh, but easily predictable given the way Marco Silva just to play it. He just he just didn't inspire me with confidence whatsoever. Tactically, the way they were playing it and what happened at the beginning of the season, I just I knew was coming all summer. No matter, I know there'll be Everton fans out there that sort of say, "Well, we finished last season strongly," but we saw that a big part of the way that we played in Adrisa Garner Gay and didn't replace him. And then when you replace a player that effectively, okay, is not no natural superstar, but is so good at stopping the other team playing and you don't replace them like for like but then you don't change the formation then that that was a big big way of what big thing of what happened at the, the start of the season for me but yeah since Carlo Ancelotti took over again this is a big job this is this is this is not going to be fixed in one transfer window this or one summer so I think Everton fans even though with the right to be positive that Carlo Ancelotti is in charge I think if if they suddenly think that we're going to start challenging for the top four next season, uh, then no, that's not going to happen. I think we still need one, two, maybe even three windows. He's on a four and a half year deal, and I think it will literally take four and a half year deals. But hopefully, they can. I don't think it's about. I think the big thing with Everton at the moment is what's gone wrong for them over the last four years. It's not spending the money, it's spending the money wisely. And he's, if they just go out and get two players, but two players that actually improve the first team, 
as opposed to two players that can come in um like say for example I'll give an example Fabian Delft now that might have made good people at last summer seemed to think that was a good buy because he only cost eight million and he come from a winning team but he didn't improve our first 11 and I, I think it's crucial for teams like Everton uh, Wolves uh, Leicester done it themselves that if they want to make that step up when you when you spend big money or relatively big money as most transfers cost these days you have to improve your first 11 so I think that's got to be the aim for Everton in the summer got to finish the season as strongly as possible there is points to be picked up there I think from a tactical point of view we showed in the derby I know it was a defensive performance but we showed elements to our game that we can actually defend which in the first derby <laughs> we couldn't uh, and we can't actually hit teams on the break and you uh, and play to our strengths so there is there is a, been a lot of plus points in the second half of the season but the summer or I want to say the summer the next transfer window will be the key uh, getting plays off the books which they are doing they're in the process of doing I think, the, I think there's four players getting released who are on absolutely ludicrous amounts of money I believe the four players that are getting released or five players that are going to get released are going to save Everton £1 million pounds a month and when you consider that, who those players are that it, it's ludicrous uh, it's the Niasi Schneiderland I think there's a youngster called Luke Garbett who's getting released as well I think he's on 30 plus grand a week so I mean that gives that just gives you an idea of of the amount of money that Everton have been thrown about over the last couple of years thrown about wrongly as well um, so yeah the, the transfer window is the key just getting maybe just one or two players to build to come straight into that first eleven, ideally a centre midfielder has to be has to be bought, but someone to come in and actually improves our first eleven and not just building a squad. It always makes me laugh when the, the, you've seen West Ham doing it uh, a lot over the year, uh, years. You've seen Everton do it. Newcastle have done it times. Even Tottenham have done it times. They, they emphasise the, the importance of building big squads to challenge the top four or the top six and they, and they buy these players but none of them actually improve the first 11 it, it, for me it's a simple process you get your strong 11 in place and then you build on top of that you don't try and build a squad before you build the 11 yeah and I think that's, I think that's what Everton have to do in the summer in order to progress yeah, I mean from the outside looking in um, uh, Everton's always a team I, I watched because how they done in the transfer market was always bad to me. It, they always seem to like. Oh yeah. It, I, I don't have rules, so to speak, but there's like little rules I set for transfers, where I think if teams are breaking those rules, they're going to have lots of problems. And one of them is is taking um, like players who went to like big clubs. Say for example, like um, uh, Andre Gomez. So a player yeah. going to a big club and then really struggling. And then he's sort of like towards the like middle peak of his career. Uh, I don't like buying those players because it's kind of like a player who had dreams of reaching the top, went to a club where he could achieve it, failed miserably. And then he's like having to go backwards, realizing that he'll probably never reach that dream. And, and yeah. for a lot of players, I see that move after going to a big club and then failing, they never really... 
they never even reached those heights again. They never reached the heights that got them to that club in the first place. And and the other thing is is taking all, um, old players on long contracts because you end yeah. up with lots of bad contracts at the end of that. Like players in their like early thirties who are on the top wages at the club and they're just squad players that aren't getting on the pitch. And so they had yeah. loads, loads of things like that. Players like Walcott, for example, I, I didn't like that. They, he's done okay at Everton, yeah. but I just didn't like it. I was just like, how do you build a squad for the future with Walcott? Because that's what Everton need. Everton need to build a team over five years. And Walcott's not going to be there after five years. So what's the point? So like, yeah. what, if you take uh, um, Klopp, for example, um, whenever we were appointing Klopp, Al, uh, Ancelotti was actually the other coach Liverpool wanted so it's kind of funny that both of them yeah. are in the same city now and um, yeah. when Klopp's come in and we've only bought players that are under the age of 26 whenever we've spent money like big money all the players were younger than like 26 or younger players like Salah and Mane and Firmino and and these are guys that you can build a squad with over five years and th- that's the kind of thing I want to see for a club that's not at the top Whereas if you're a club like Manchester yeah. United, for example, and you just need a goal scorer, you can go out and spend big money on a guy who's 29. They'll score you goals for like two or three years, and it doesn't matter because it's just the thing that you need. Whereas Everton need yeah. a lot of things. You can't just blow money on, on one player. You need you need lots of things to build your squad over years. So yeah. from the outside looking in, Everton always done bad business for me. But one player I like that they signed is a Wobie. A lot of play- people don't like him, but I, I, think, he's, I think he's a good player. And um, he, he's the kind of right player I would get, like a young player that hasn't broken through yet at a big club. But you can see there's a lot of talent there, and he just maybe needs the right club to find it. And I think he'll probably yeah. do well there at, at Everton. Yeah, well, I was I was uh, mightily impressed with him against Norwich in the second half, and I was mightily impressed with him the way he is way great in a derby. I mean, it was a clear tactical plan there that we tried to double up on Mane. Uh, which he don't feel he was a big part of the reason why Seamus Coleman was so able to get able to get man of the match because of the assistance that he provided with him. I felt a little bit sorry for him when he joined Everton because he joined on transfer deadline day when all the hype and the the rumour was around us getting Wilfred Zaha. So it, it kinda looked like, oh well we can't get Zaha, so we'll get anyone in which was not necessarily correct. I mean, all the stories that I heard coming out of Goodson was that Silver was actually after a Wobie all summer, but it was more about getting the right financial deal in place to actually get him. So, again, he's a, he's a player that he, I, I think I think he's I don't want to say underrated because that makes him sound like he's achieved big things without us uh, without us realizing that he has, which he's not yet to do. But I actually think, given if he can stay fit, I would. Um, I actually think he'd become a very, very useful player for Everton, given the fact that he can play. He can play actually anywhere across the midfield. Depend that'll be dependent on the on the formation and, and style of plan or tactical plan that Ancelotti goes forward with. But he, he his versatility will come in useful. I feel, and I do. I do like uh, in the modern day in the modern day game, as you know, being a Liverpool fan, pressing is so essential now. Uh, the way teams play or the way teams press and he actually does it I've been a good son a number of times uh, and sort of focused on watching him on what he does off the ball and he actually he doesn't just close play down he actually presses correctly 
in the sense that he knows how to press, he knows where to position his body, he knows how to um, he knows how to force the opposition down to one only one option. Um, but obviously, he, he needs the he needs the rest of the team to do that correctly uh, around him as well. But I think there's definitely something to build on with Awobi. He's not a player that I would actually like to see leave anytime soon. As where and there's not many players that I could actually say there's only a handful of players in Everton's squad that would actually be disappointed to see leave if they did leave and that he would be one of them as opposed to the rest of them who you mentioned there, Theo Walcott I think if the right financial deal is in place he will leave Everton Yeah, yeah. But ju- yeah. Uh, could, I just, could I just ask though Steve just uh, uh, moving that on I mean Given your expertise and data and just switching the conversation back to Liverpool, have you noticed any uh, major statistical data changes from Liverpool this season to Liverpool last season and the way they've played? Um, It's it's an interesting question. I haven't actually um, looked at it in that sense, but little things are different. Like... um, I was looking recently at, for example, how many tackles teams make, because there's this uh, kind of belief on Twitter, I guess, that, that tackling is a good thing. So, like, for example, um, Aaron Wambasaka makes the most tackles in the league, and therefore that's a good thing because he's a defender. But I was looking, and the, the teams that make the fewest tackles are, are, are the teams that are doing well. Um, and it isn't based on possession or anything either. If you plot it on, like, a, a scatter graph, there's no line there based on a correlation between possession and the amount of tackles the team's making. It, it's almost like a, a conscious choice from the team to not try to win the ball in that way. And, and so it looks like Liverpool are, are trying to press teams more into making mistakes and uh, playing like balls that can be picked off by like interceptions or passes the people who aren't ready to receive it and they're going to lose it as soon as the ta- as soon as they win the ball rather than trying to like um r- rather than needing to dive in i guess rather than like taking yourself out of the game it, it's basically a way to keep their structure and shape always in a good way um and i don't know whether that's a, a change in personnel for example milner is a player that always made a lot of tackles in midfield and so if you take Milner out and you have a player like um, Keita or, or Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, they press a lot, probably as much as or if not more than Milner based on the data, but um, they, don't, they don't have as many tackles or at least they're not dribbled past as much as Milner, I guess. So um, I think that's something that we're, we're looking at is trying to keep our midfield in the game um, as much as possible. Um, but then outside of that, you've got Fabinho, who makes more tackles than anyone. So, like, against Crystal Palace, he made, like, six or seven in one game. And against Red Star Belgrade earlier in the season, it was, like, I think it was, like, 10 or 11. So he's, the, he's like, the antithesis of what the, re- yeah. the direction the rest of the data is going in. So it doesn't... Um, it, it's kind of interesting, but it comes down to the thing I was saying about roles. Like, um, players have roles in teams. So there might be a guy that you're trying to funnel everything into, so he can just like ambush people as soon as they receive the ball and, and take it off them. Um, and that's something else I see a lot of from, from Liverpool at the moment as well. Uh, a, a lot of pressing is about the thing you said about deciding where the player that has the ball can pass it to. So you yeah. like angle your run so you block off an option 
and then you 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 run in a direction that you want them to, to turn towards, and then if someone else is reading that, he can ambush the guy as soon as he's going to pass it because you've get you've only given one option. So I, I posted yeah. on Twitter the other day an example from the Arsenal game of their young forward whose name escapes me at the moment, but he uh he ambushed the goalkeeper by curving his run, shutting off one option, and then sprinting at the guy so he would put his head down because he was worried about losing the ball. So he wanted to make sure he got a good first touch. He looks down at the ball. The guy changed the direction of his run as soon as he looked down at the ball to cover the option he was going to pass to and then intercepts the pass and scores in an empty net. And it's if you look at it, you think it's a goalkeeper mistake, but it's not. It's just absolutely brilliant forward play. It's so, yeah. so clever. The way he done all of those stages is just spot on. It's the same, the thing you said about Iwobi, that's why I like him. He has that same instinct. And again, he comes from the same Arsenal team, the same coaching yeah. background. So it's obviously something they're working on there at young ages. It's so good to see. And it, it makes you very encouraged about the future of, I guess, English football as well. Because the England national team's never been good tactically. They're always like, that's why they're so weak. They always have very good players in terms of physically and tactically. They could always match players with like Gerrard, Lampard, Scholes. They can match any midfielder. But it's that tactical level of the player. Those little uh, game smarts that they have, they never really had that. And I guess now they're, they're, they're going to have it with... Uh, the players coming through it at other clubs. So this is the end of part one of the podcast with Stephen Drennan and my co-host Chris. In part two, we'll have more discussions on the data analytics part and the data part. 